Hi everyone, I'm Gary Lewis and welcome to the GEO Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the evidence that we can use to see how climate has changed throughout Earth history. With the current effects of climate change hitting our Earth in so many different ways, it's really important that we go back and understand how we know that climate has been changing throughout Earth history and that the current climate change is considerably different from what we've seen in the past. So there's about eight different things that we can look at that provides us evidence for past climate on the planet. And they include things like stable isotopes, fossils, paleomagnetism, ice cores, glaciers, speleothems, tree rings, and even written records. So there's a lot to cover here. So I'm just going to talk briefly about each one. And to start us off, I'm gonna talk about stable isotope evidence. So the fundamental building block of everything on our planet and in the universe are atoms. And atoms are made up of a nucleus surrounded by electrons, but the nucleus itself is made up of smaller particles. And these are protons and neutrons. Now, the atomic number of any element refers to the number of protons that occur in its nucleus. But some elements can contain differing amounts of neutrons. So their atomic weight is really the average of the number of protons and the number of neutrons. Now I know I'm getting technical here, but it's important to know that some elements, while they have the same number of protons, can have different numbers of neutrons in their nucleus. And we refer to these variations as isotopes of that element. The important element for climate change evidence is the element oxygen. So oxygen can have eight, nine, or 10 neutrons in its nucleus, giving it its atomic weights of 16, the most common, 17 and 18. If we collected all of the oxygen atoms and we worked out the percentages of oxygen with 16, oxygen with 17, and oxygen with 18 atomic weights, oxygen 16 would make up more than 99.5% of all the oxygen atoms. So oxygen with an atomic weight of 17 and oxygen with an atomic weight of 18 make up a very, very small amount of all of the oxygen atoms on the planet. The element hydrogen has a similar isotopes. It has hydrogen that has an atomic weight of one and hydrogen that has an atomic weight of two. So, so why is this all important? Well, it means if you form a water molecule, which is two atoms of hydrogen joined to one atom of oxygen, some water molecules are going to be heavier than others because they contain atoms of hydrogen that have an atomic weight of two and atoms of oxygen that have an atomic weight of 18. Compared to waters that have hydrogens with atomic weights of one and an oxygen with an atomic weight of 16. Now that's important because the energy that is needed to evaporate water is different 
for molecules of light water, that is water that contains hydrogen with an atomic weight of one and oxygen with an atomic weight of 16, compared to the heavy water, which is hydrogen with an atomic weight of two and oxygen with an atomic weight of 18. So when water is then evaporated from, say, the surface of the ocean, it has a tendency to take the lighter water molecules and leave the heavier ones behind. Now, in a normal, stable climate, the water that gets evaporated, so the light water, will eventually condensate, fall as precipitation, run back down into the oceans, and everything will remain in balance. Because the temperatures are staying the same, therefore evaporation, condensation, and precipitation constantly will keep all of the isotopes in around about the same mix. But if you start increasing the temperature or decreasing the temperature, then the mix gets out of balance. So if you increase the temperature, more of the heavier water can be evaporated up into the atmosphere, so the remaining water in the ocean ends up depleted of the heavier oxygen and heavier hydrogen isotopes. And the way we use this is if we can find some fossil water, if you like, that's been trapped in minerals or trapped in ice, we can actually look at the oxygen, hydrogen, and in particular oxygen isotopes and tell if the temperature of the air above the ocean was warmer or colder than current days because of the amount of oxygen isotope that's been trapped. Believe me, it's far more complex than this, but that gives you at least an idea how it works. Fossil evidence is another piece of evidence that we can pull in to look at how climate has changed. There are some animals, in particular planktonic animals, so animals that are living in the top of the water column, that are very much affected by water temperature. So if you've got these animals living and in a period of warm times, then their spread north and south of the equator will have increased because as water temperature increases, the ocean temperature increases, these animals can live further north and further south. Likewise, during a period of cooling, their range of those animals can live shrinks down and they can maybe only live very close to the equator because the water in the ocean gets cooler as you go further north and further south. So finding fossils of these animals, like forams, that's shortening for foraminiferas, diatoms and other animals like that, we can actually work out whether the oceans were warmer or cooler when those fossils formed. And of course, we can actually extract isogen oxytopes from their shells to find out even more evidence about the temperatures when those animals were living. Fossils of land plants like spores and pollen also are a great indicator of past climates. So these plant microfossils give us great information about the types of plants that were living in an area over time. So if the po pollen record shows that great forests contracted towards the equator, especially during times when the glaciers were advancing, it gives us a great indication that we were going into a glacial maximum period. Likewise, if we find the spores and pollens of plants that only live in tropical rainforest conditions, in areas where there are no longer tropical rainforests, then we know that the climate has been 
cooling from that time when those plants were thriving, forming those spores and pollen that get into the record. The next piece of evidence really isn't evidence about climate change as such, but gives us evidence about where the continents were, and that is paleomagnetism. Now, I've written the blog, and I've even talked about it in other episodes of this podcast about paleomagnetism. So this is where, when molten rock forms, the little iron crystals that form in the molten rock will all line up with the Earth's magnetic field, and it tells us where a continent was during any period of time. So if you're going to look at plant fossils, you also need to know where the continent was geographically in relation to the equator, and that's what paleomagnetism can tell us. It also can be used to tell us where all the continents were lined up, because the more continental masses you have in any one given place means the colder that area will be. Oceans have a great way of transferring heat around, and the oceans are a lot more stable than over the continents. Continents seem to have hotter summers and much, much colder winters than areas of oceans. So let me get back to more direct evidence. In places where it snows and doesn't melt all the way through during summer, that snow can accumulate year after year after year, and create a great thickness of ice as the snow gets compacted and we can actually drill down and collect ice that is thousands and thousands of years old and use that to study climate. There's a couple of different things that we can use from ice cores. So for example, if it's been snowing and not much melting as the snow actually gets compressed, the amount of air bubbles that get trapped in the snow is fairly high. If you have a period of time where the snow has been formed but it warms up a little so it melts a little then that ice in the ice core has less air bubbles. So just air bubbles alone can be used as an indicator of warm periods and cold periods. More importantly however is if we can collect the air then we can actually do a chemical analysis of the air and see what oxygen isotopes are in there. We can even see levels of carbon dioxide, for example, at one of the greenhouse gases. We can work out the age of the ice cores because every now and then, nice volcanoes erupt, leaving ash up in the atmosphere, which settles down onto the snow, and those pieces of ash get trapped in the snow and we can use those to date the ice cores so we can work out even if we drill an ice core and it's hundreds of meters long if we can find those volcanic bands we can actually work out the age of the ice core and while we're talking about ice cores we should also just talk about glaciers glaciers are a great indicator of what is happening during climate change they will retreat that is melt back during warm periods and then they will advance during cold periods mainly because a glacier works from snow falling high up into the mountains in a basin the snow accumulates to great thicknesses it gets compressed turned into ice and that ice flows down slope as a glacier and as long as the amount of snow keeps being accumulated at the top of the glacier the glacier will continue to flow down once the temperature rises so not so much snow is falling at the top 
and the bottom of the glacier is melting, the glacier will retreat. Please note here, the glacier's ice doesn't flow back uphill. That's not what retreating means. It's just melting faster at its base than it is accumulating snow right back up into the mountains at its cirque. When a glacier moves, it normally has great chunks of rock embedded in the ice. And those chunks of rock can grind along the base rock that the glacier is passing over. And it leaves glacial grooves and glacial striations, big grinding marks in the base rock. And these marks can be found in places now where there has been no glaciers for 20,000 years. And we use this type of evidence to see in the past where glaciers have been. When the glacial ice melts, those big boulders that are being brought along and ground along get dumped where the ice melts. And these glacial erratic fields can be found all over northern parts of the United States and in some parts in Australia as well, especially down in Tasmania. So finding these pieces of evidence from glaciers gives us an idea of how far a glacier has traveled and that in some areas now covered by forests and in fact even covered by rainforests we can find evidence that glaciers have been there in the past indicating that it's been a colder period in earth history. Another way that we can look at climate change is speleothems. These are the stalactites and stalagmites that grow in caves. Now this may seem a little unusual, but there's a really good reason that speleothems can provide us good evidence. And that is that very many caves are actually forming underground and are isolated from the air in the atmosphere. So the air in the atmosphere inside the cave is constant while the air in the Earth's atmosphere is changing. The speleothems are therefore growing because of the amount of water that's making its way down through the rock and into the cave. And we can measure the growth rates of the speleothems, especially during wet periods in Earth climate. When there's a lot more groundwater, the speleothems grow a lot faster because there's a lot more water. And then during really, really dry times, the speleothems stop growing because there isn't any water to carry the limestone through the rock and form those drips that the limestone is precipitating out of. And then we also have caves that have actually formed really close to sea level. And when sea level rises and it floods the cave, the formations can no longer grow. And in fact, you can get marine organisms growing on the speleothems. So shells and oysters and things growing on stalactites and stalagmites. Then when sea level drops, those organisms can't live on them anymore, but their shells are found fossilized on the speleothems. And of course, oxygen isotope data can always be gathered wherever water has been involved. One really great way of studying recent climate change is the study of tree rings. So when trees grow, they normally have a growth season during spring and summer. Then the tree slows its growth down during autumn and through winter may stop growing completely. So every year when it grows, it puts on a ring, a, a growth of the different tree cells around the core of the tree. So during really favorable growing seasons, the tree will actually grow a very thick ring. 
during really poor, dry growing seasons, the tree will hardly grow a ring at all. So in some places on the planet, tree rings have been studied since the 1830s, and there is a record of climate variation on a yearly basis in tree rings for many, many, many hundreds of years. Using that data, we can find out periods where it was wet and other periods where it was dry. And if we look at the long-term trends, you can actually see how climate has changed over time in one location or across a whole area if you take tree rings, say, for all the way across Europe. Because the tree ring data is so well known, stored away in, in great databases, people can actually work it in reverse. They can find wood that's been used in buildings, take a core of the wood, load in the tree ring information from a short piece of core from that wood, and they can match it with the tree ring data in the database and tell you how old that piece of wood is. So for archeology, span it's a great tool for them dating sites, but I sort of digress. The final piece of evidence, and it's the one that most people sort of forget about, is written records. And these written records can be divided into four different types of written records. So the first one is like direct weather observations, where people have gone out and measured temperatures or the frequency of frosts or the depths of snow every year, and that's been recorded. The second is the recording of sort of major weather-dependent events, so floods and droughts, rivers freezing over or lakes freezing over or lakes, lakes not freezing over, those type of events. So it's not a continuous stream of data, but it is at least the unusual events that get recorded. The third one is weather-dependent biological events. So things like the dates that trees go into flower or the arrival of birds that migrate. These types of phenology events are important for understanding how climate is changing. And the final and somewhat related to the last one are written records of crop growth or failure. Humans have had a tendency to record the bad things that have happened. So the bad droughts and the crop failures and when the birds didn't turn up, the year without summer and these other sorts of events rather than collecting data on a daily basis. And other than the actual written record, we've also got a few cases where we've been able to see major climate events taking place through art. So for example, a study of about 12,000 landscape paintings made between the year 1400 and 1967 have shown that artists have been drawing, painting the different cloud types that they've been experiencing. And that especially in places like Europe, we have been able to see how climate has affected the cloud patterns that they've been seeing. One particular event was the amazing sunset paintings that came out as a result of the artists seeing the effects of the Tombora volcanic eruption in 1815 that put lots of ash and sulfuric aerosols up into the atmosphere, giving really dramatic sunsets over Northern Europe. And that's what the artists saw, and that's what the artists painted. 
So that was a real quick overview of the types of evidence that we can gather to see what's happening with Earth climate. So stable isotopes, fossil evidence, paleomagnetism, ice cores, glaciers, speleothems, tree rings, written records, and I've probably missed a few. But for now, I think that will do it for this episode. And for the teachers who are listening, if you go to the member resources section of the GeoEtcetera site, you'll actually find a number of activities that use some of these forms of climate evidence that you can use directly in your classroom with your students. Cost you 99 cents a month, worth every penny. But as always, if you want more information about geology and earth science, then come check us out at geoetc.com. That's G-E-O-E-T-C dot com. But for now, keep on rocking.